everyone, and welcome back to Building the Machine, the new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we're bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're seeing how the machine was constructed, experiencing all the highs and lows, and taking a look at the legacy that remains. Now, each week, we're bringing you a new episode that's focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, hey, it's a chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about uh, this team and these events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. You're also going to learn about what was different about baseball in that era. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this is going to be a fun blast from the past. This is episode 8, Back to Back Sugar Bear. And joining me to discuss the 1976 Reds, Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm wonderful. It's a, it was a banner year, 1976. It was my high school graduation year. Oh, exciting times, uh, certainly. And uh, that's a good place to start, I guess, because it was a really interesting year in United States history. So as we always do with these uh, episodes of this series, we talk about what's going on in pop culture. And in 1976, obviously the big uh, memory from that year is the United States celebrating the bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of the American Revolution. Was that was that as big as, as you retrospect as you remember it absolutely i, I with the uh, things were going on everywhere there was a bicentennial this bicentennial that in fact i have a bicentennial high school diploma <laughs> wow exciting times so that means that it took you 200 years to graduate high school how does that work uh it took me 150 years to graduate from high school <laughs> okay. let's not exaggerate let's not exaggerate too much all right also in 76 georgia governor jimmy carter defeated incumbent Gerald Ford to become the 39th president of the United States. Also that year, Apple Computer Company, created by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. In the last episode, we mentioned that Microsoft was founded here the next year, Apple, and the world would never be the same, would it? I'm a big Apple guy. This was a landmark year for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Patty Hearst was found guilty of armed robbery of a San Francisco bank. That's kind of a story we've not really been following over the course of this podcast, but it's something I know you remember very well, the, the Patty Hearst saga. Yeah, we talked about this a couple of episodes back or, or so when the, that she had been kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And it's a very interesting story. If you're not familiar with it, it's worth going out and giving it a read to. Her family had to give had to put all this money forward to, for food banks uh, to help the poor, to get her supposedly released. And she ended up being with them when they robbed this bank. And later after she had been you know, recovered, she was tried. And it, it's a real interesting story. Uh, it's well worth the time to read. Another story that captivated the country that summer on July 29th in New York City, the son of Sam pulled a gun from a paper bag, killed one, seriously wounded another, and that was the first of a series of attacks that really would terrorize New York City for the uh, the next year. How much did that penetrate the consciousness in Cincinnati, in the Cincinnati area, Bill? Um, by the time this kind of started, I was I was uh, I, early on not at all. As as it rose and rose, I was in the Navy, so I. But I do remember the headlines in in the paper in Jacksonville when I was in Jacksonville. You know, as this moved on later into the Son of Sam saga. What what else happened in the news in 1976, Bill? The only other thing that I came across was the Israeli commandos rescuing 103 hostages in Uganda in the so-called raid on Entebbe. Uh, they were able to rescue these hostages who'd been on a hijacked plane without losing one hostage and they only lost one Israeli soldier 
in this and it, it, this thing spawned at least two movies and i'm aware of but it's a it's a wonderful story speaking of movies let's talk about movies in 1976 again a great decade for film and 1976 was just as good rocky the highest grossing film would go on to win best picture at classic rags to riches american dream story of rocky balboa I, I'm, I'm guessing we haven't discussed this but i'm guessing you're a, as big a fan of rocky as i am i absolutely am and, and I, I remember seeing rocky in the theater and then after that i used to see everyone on the day of release uh, i remember seeing two and three and four on the day of the release you know, and I, I don't know how many Rocky movies there were, 22, 23, I, you know, but the other thing, this, this made Stallone a star and, you know, brought about Rambo and all the other things that he's done since then. Yeah, it was kind of a rags to riches story for Stallone as well, who wrote Rocky. And uh, you mentioned a long string of, of Rocky movies. They're actually still going strong. And if you haven't seen Creed and Creed II, the, most two, the two most recent ones, both outstanding films. So, Yes, they are. Michael Jordan's a heck of an actor. Network. Directed by Sidney Lumet, starring Peter Finch and Faye Dunaway, they came away with the top acting uh, prizes at the Oscars. But Network is a is a movie that a great movie, but uh, remains in the consciousness because it's uh, it talks about media a little bit. Anything that talks about media, the media wants to continue talking about thirty, forty years later. But I'm uh, mad as hell, and I'm not taking it anymore. Exactly. Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro in a haunting performance. Yeah, for one obsessed fan and John Hinckley who. Later would try to assassinate the president. Speaking of the president, all the president's men came out that year. We talked about the Watergate saga, and here this was uh, uh, the story about the Washington Post investigation. They're starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Very, very good, yes. Uh, what else came out that year, Bill? Uh, Carrie with uh, Sissy Spacek and John Travolta. Uh, the Outlaw Josie Wales, Clint Eastwood film. A wonderful baseball movie, The Bad News Bears. A very scary movie, The Omen. And The Silver Streak came out that year, which made Richard Pryor a movie star. Speaking of movie stars, one uh, appeared in his final film that year. Yeah, John Wayne did his final f- film that year, The Shootist, which I-, I just think it's a great, great movie. And, and the best movie he'd probably done in a long time. And it was a real fitting end to his career. And th- there's a there's a wonderful story about this movie that he, there's a scene in this movie where he he's doing with Ron Howard, and Ron Howard has to chew John Wayne out in this movie, and he just couldn't bring himself to do it. This was John Wayne for God's sake. And after two or three takes, John Wayne finally said, "Son, will you get this thing over with? We got other things to do." <laughs> Poor uh, little Opie, having to yell at John Wayne. We mentioned him just about each of these episodes because he was such a giant in the film industry at that time. And I know you were a big fan. I've seen a bunch of John Wayne's movies uh, in the intervening years since, but uh, that's one that I put up there with uh, The Shootist with any of his films. Uh, I gave it four and a half stars out of five uh, in my little rating system because I'm obsessed about keeping these things. I put it up there, though, with Stagecoach and uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and The Searchers, Rio Bravo. I mean, I, I think it's as good as, as any of his best. And... Uh, John Wayne, Lauren Bacall, just a just a great, great movie. So, you know, who else was really good in that movie is, is Henry Morgan. Ah, Henry Did Morgan, Sheriff Thibodeau. Mm-hmm. So go see that one if you haven't. The last thing in movies, really, Bill. Filming began on Star Wars, and uh, it's going to change movies forever. We'll talk more about that perhaps in our 1977 episode. Tell me a little bit about music in '77. I know you're a big music guy in the mid '70s. 
Uh, the band held their final concert in San Francisco, and it was uh, memorialized by a, a film by Martin Scorsese called The Last Waltz. In April, Frampton Comes Alive was released, which is a, if you're not familiar with Frampton Comes Alive, it's a multi-platinum selling live album. It hit number one in the Billboard charts and remained there for 10 weeks. And it was the biggest selling album of the year. There were three top 10 singles off the album. And I can tell you this, at the time, I had the eight track of this playing in my car constantly. And you'd be in the middle. And if you know, if you don't know eight tracks, if you're not old enough to remember eight tracks, when you got to the end of the track, no matter where it was in the song, you got a boom, boom, and it clicked over to the next track, and the song picked back up. But listening to things on eight tracks was different than uh, listening to them on your cassette player on your album, that was for sure. <laughs> no doubt. The Eagles released their Greatest Hits album, and it was the first album certified platinum by the Recording Industry Association of America, and it went platinum a week after it went on sale. And later that year, the Eagles released Hotel California. A couple other albums of note that year. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us about these and what you remember about these two albums? Yeah, these were two of my favorites, and I, I'm the one that added these to our notes. Is, uh, the, the album Gratitude by Earth, Wind, and Fire. And Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder were both released that year also. Other things in the world of music in 1976, the punk rock group The Ramones released their first album, as does the rock group Boston. U2 was formed that year in Dublin, Ireland. Now, what was YouTube's original name, Bill? It was called Feedback. Some uh, bands disbanded that year. Three Dog Night calls it quits, as does it Loggins and Messina. Kenny Loggins would never be heard from again, and Ike and Tina Turner got divorced. Three Dog Night was a great band, and Ike and Tina Turner's breakup was a little different than most bands. A little bit, yes. <laughs> the biggest hit singles in 1976, Dancing Queen by ABBA. I've been known as the Dancing Queen for my entire life, Bill. Did you know that? I did not, but I can see that. Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody for Queen. Uh, we mentioned that last episode because it actually came out in 75, but it was still one of the biggest hit singles in 76 still. If You Leave Me Now, Chicago. and Not one of their better songs. What about Don't Go Breaking My Heart? Not one of Elton John's better songs either, but it was a hit. <laughs> and also Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry. Let's move on to television. The Muppet Show broadcast for the first time. Other shows that uh, went on the air in 1976. Family Feud, Laverne and Shirley. A spinoff of... Happy Days. The Gong Show and Alice. The Blues Brothers debuted on Saturday Night Live, and, and Lorne Michaels offered the Beatles $3,000 to reunite and perform on Saturday Night Live. Later on, he sweetened the offer to 3200 and the, the lore goes that, that John Lennon and Paul McCartney saw this at Lennon's place over at the Dakota and talked about actually going down uh, and, uh, and showing up and collecting that. Yeah, they said they were too, they decided they were too tired, though. <laughs> too tired to just go down and collect thousands of dollars. Ugh. What else happened in television, Bill? Uh, ABC aired its first Monday Night Baseball. They took over the package from NBC. And then on Jerry Lewis's uh, Labor Day Telethon for muscular dystrophy, Frank Sinatra brought out his former partner, Dean, Jerry Lewis's former partner, Dean Martin, on stage unannounced, reuniting the comedy team for the first time and the only time in over 20 years. And if you've never seen this clip, go out to YouTube and watch it. It's pretty amazing. It, it's, it, it's a really neat clip. And we've talked about... Ball Four, the book by Jim Bouton. Why is it in the television uh, category this this week? 
Well, they had a television series, and I have absolutely no memory of this television series at all, other than what I've read, you know, reading Ball Five and, and those kind of things. I have no memory of them, of this television series at all. Well, the reason you have no memory is because it was canceled after only five episodes, but it did actually star Jim Bouton, the author. And that may be why it was only five episodes. Perhaps. Uh, good pitcher, fun writer, maybe not an actor. Maybe not. In the world of sports, the Boston Celtics defeated the Phoenix Suns four games to two to win the NBA Finals. Celtics point guard JoJo White, series MVP. And then a couple weeks later, the NBA and the American Basketball Association agree to merge. It was a big moment in American sports history. The Pittsburgh Steelers defeated the Cowboys in Super Bowl X. MVP was Lynn Swan. The Montreal Canadiens swept the Philadelphia Flyers four, in four games to win the Stanley Cup. And the Flyers forward Reggie Leach became the only non-goaltender from a finals losing team to win the MVP trophy. Scored 19 goals in 16 playoff games. That's pretty amazing. It's not bad. Why don't you run us through some of the names that were born in 1976, Bill? Uh, Reese Witherspoon, Ryan Reynolds, Colin Farrell, Benedict Cumberpatch, Fred Savage from the Wonder Years, uh, Charlie Day and Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, in the world of sports, Peyton Manning was born that year, and tennis star Lindsey Davenport, uh, country star Luke Bryan, and Soleil Moonfry, TV's Thank Punky Brewster. <laughs> Thank you. I could not pronounce that. <laughs> uh, you're not a big Punky Brewster fan, Bill? Uh, no, I, I was not a Punky Brewster fan. Deaths, uh, notable deaths in 1976. Mystery author Agatha Christie died at age 85. Actress Anissa Jones who had become famous for playing Buffy Davis in the TV series Family Affair, was found dead of an accidental overdose at age 18. That was that was quite the story at the time. I remember that. Yeah, she had been a pretty, it was a pretty popular show. And, yes. Uh, so she was a well-known child actor. Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher Bob Moose was killed in a car crash on his 29th birthday in Ohio. And we remember Bob Moose from... I think episode three of this uh, series, right, Bill? Yeah, game five of the 72 playoffs. He was the one that unleashed the wild pitch that scored uh, George Foster, I believe it was, uh, with the winning run in game five. And uh, killed in a car crash on his 29th birthday. Other uh, notable death, Howard Hughes, American aviation pioneer, film director, and noted eccentric. Enough about pop culture. Let's talk about the Cincinnati Reds. Bill, kind of get us adjusted where we were. Obviously, the 1975 Reds were 108-54 uh, and 54 on the season, finished first in the National League West, won the National League Championship Series in a sweep over the Pirates, and then the memorable seven-game win in the World Series over the Red Sox to finally get that monkey off their back. Talk to us about the moves the Reds made in the offseason as they prepared for 1976. Well, one of the biggest things was for the first time the Reds lost somebody off their coaching staff. Third base coach Alex Grammas had been hired to manage the, the uh, Milwaukee Brewers. And George Sugar would move off the bench and go out and take over third base. The Reds made a number of deals uh, going into the 77 season. They traded longtime backup shortstop Daryl Chaney to the, to the Braves from Mike Lum, who would start 27 games in the outfield this year. They traded longtime reliever, very, very strong reliever, the Hawk, Clay Carroll, to the White Sox for somebody named Jeff Sovereign who they'd never play in the big leagues, and a guy named Rich Hinton who would pitch for the Reds a little bit this year and would be very ineffective. 
they traded Clay Carroll for a couple of reasons, um, and he would be effective for a couple more years after he was traded. Uh, they were concerned about his age. Housing was worried about his salary. He was making 95000 a year. And they were pretty happy with what they were getting out of Eastwick and McEnany at this point. Uh, they traded Clay Kirby, who had never been the starting pitcher they really thought they were going to get when they got him from San Diego. They traded him to the Expos, and they got Bob Bailey for him, and, and Bailey would start 34 games in left field and third base. So the, the Reds had unloaded Kirby because he'd struggled in 75, and, and they had some young pitchers that they thought were on the, on the cusp of being really, really good. Uh, they also released Terry Crowley and Merv Rettman. Probably the worst move, though, that, that, that Housen made was he traded Joaquin Andahar to Houston because he basically didn't think – they didn't think he fit the Reds' image. They're, he wasn't conservative enough and wasn't a real good deal. They didn't, get much, they didn't get anything for him, and he went on 127 games for Houston, won 20 twice, and like I said, they didn't get anything for him. The other big thing that happened in the offseason was Don Gullett didn't sign his 76 contract and he became the first player in Reds history to play out his option and qualify for free agency. Gullin had, Gullin had wanted, a, wanted a multi-year deal from the Reds, and Housen was still hanging back on, on multi-year deals. And let's talk about that for just a moment, because this was a time when you know, free agency was a, a very new thing in, in baseball. And in order to become a free agent, essentially, you had to play out your, your, your contract, and then you had to play another, uh, an option year out, right? And then you would be qualified as a free agent. That's how that worked? Yeah, you, you, you played you played your, the second you played a year without a contract for the salary you made the year before. And Don Gullett uh, wanted a multi-year deal. The Reds stuck to their guns on that, and and more about that as we get through '76 and into '77. Uh, as we do every every single week, Bill, we talk about the contract negotiations, and frankly, for the Reds, it wasn't as much drama as usual. But then uh, the Players Association made a little bit of drama. Yeah, the Reds, the Rose, Morgan, and Bench all signed for around two hundred thousand. The Reds lowballed Perez at about one hundred and seventeen thousand. Uh, but after his hold, after his holdout, he finally did get a raise. But what happened with the with the Players Association was they couldn't come to an agreement with the owners, and the owners ended up locking the players out for seventeen days before the season started as they were negotiating on a new deal. And the biggest issue going in negotiation was the length of service before free agency. The players wanted it to be six years. The owners wanted eight or nine years. And Housem at least thought that the, uh, that the you know, that they could break the union and, and bring them around to their way of thinking. And after 17 days, Commissioner Bowie Coon ordered the camps to open. And by mid-season, they had a new agreement, and the players got the free agency after six years that they wanted. And Housen was never happy with the fact that Kuhn, Kuhn capitulated to the players' union. And that's kind of a, a side note to what we're going to see for the next couple of years, which is this: uh, the system, baseball system changing, did not agree with Reds general manager Bob Housen. Okay, so we get to the, the regular season here, okay? The Reds are trying to become the first National League team to repeat as world champions since the New York Giants way back in 1921 and 1922. Sparky predicted a world championship, that the Reds would have three 20-game winners, and that another Red would win the MVP. Pretty confident, huh? That was Sparky. He always, <laughs> he always thought he had the you know the best team in baseball, no matter whether he really did or not, but... After 75, it's hard to believe, you know, it's hard to, it would have been hard to convince anybody that he didn't have the best team. But the season really didn't go 
quite the way Sparky thought it would. It did not. And uh, as we get to opening day, it's April the 8th versus Houston. Gary Nolan versus J.R. Richard. And it's uh, also J.R. Richard versus the Great Eight. And not surprising what happened when the Great Eight was playing, right? What th- what happened on opening day, Bill? Well, the Reds won 11-5. Rose and Morgan both had three hits. Perez drove in four. And they won going away against a guy that was a phenomenal pitcher. And we'll talk more about uh, Richard's probably over the years. No question. Now, the Reds, though, started slow, you know, uh, after all those uh, great predictions. And everyone had them projected to win the National League West after that great 1975. But they started slow at the end of April, just 10-7, and but still led their division uh, by a game because, fortunately, the Dodgers started slow as well. In May, picked things up. Uh, and went 18 and 10. But again, this has been a consistent theme throughout this uh, Building the Machine series. The Reds have started slow almost every year, haven't they? Yeah, they did. Sparky always blamed their, their early starts on the cold weather. Uh, even at the end at the end of May, you know, they were they were 28 and 17, but they were still only a game only had a game lead. And and Sparky was blaming the cold weather. And the only year that they played well in early part of the season was 1970, which was the year they won 70 of their first 100. The Reds historically played their best baseball when the weather was warm in July and August. Now we move on to May the 9th, and Dave Concepcion, this, he's in a slump. He's in a hitting slump at the plate. And this is one of my absolute favorite stories. I remember Concepcion was still playing for the Reds by the time I heard this story. It was, this just makes it a legend in Reds history. Can you tell us what happened on May 9th? in Chicago there, Bill? Well, what happened was Davey was, was, was struggling a little bit, and it was a really cold day in, in, in Wrigley. And before the game, Davey decided to warm up by climbing into one of these big, huge clothes dryers in the clubhouse. Well, Pat Zachary decided to turn the thing on. So after Concepcion bounced around a few times and came out with singed hairs on his legs, the Reds ended up in a... It kind of turned the red season around. It turned it, it heated the team up, so to speak, and heated Concepcion up as well, who went on to have a very, very good season, uh, one of his better seasons for the Reds. We'll talk more about Concepcion as we go. Now, we've talked about the Cincinnati Reds and the Los Angeles Dodgers, and that's been the theme from the beginning of this series. And you're not going to be surprised to learn that it's a theme in 1976 as well. And the first uh, big series comes begins in, on Monday, May the 17th when the Reds go to Los Angeles. Now, they're down by a half game, and they begin a two-game series out in L.A. So a half game separating them, just a two-game series. But here, we're already seeing in May the Reds and Dodgers uh, smacking each other around. Tell us about that series, Bill. Well, in the first game, the the Reds jumped all over Don Sutton for four runs in the second inning, and they rolled on to a pretty easy 5-3 win. Rookie Pat Zachary pitched seven innings, gave up three runs. Only one was earned, and Raleigh Eastwick threw two scoreless innings. To shut to, to close the game out. So on Tuesday the Reds are shut out by Rick Roden five to nothing, and so uh, they split the doubleheader, and still a half game back. Now fast forward two weeks, and the Dodgers come to Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati, and by this time the Dodgers had opened up a two game lead. So tell us about that four game series at at Cincinnati. Well, once again, Pat, the rookie Pat Zachary comes out in the first game, throws a complete game shutout, beating Sutton again. The Reds beat him nine to nothing. And they kind of just whooped up on Don Sutton and Mike Marshall that night in front of a crowd of about 35,000. 
on, on Saturday, the 29th, in front of about 40,000 people. So as you can tell, the Reds-Dodgers series always drew. The Reds scored one in the eighth on a home run by Perez, three in the ninth to beat the Dodgers six to five off Marshall. The winner was scored on a, on a single by Joe Morgan. On, on May the 30th, in front of 51,000 people, a Sunday doubleheader. They lost the first game, but the Reds win the nightcap after, when Santo Alcala throws six innings of two-run ball. Only one run was earned. And Bill Plummer would hit one of his career-high four home runs that he hit in 76. He'd hit it in that game. And the Reds would win three out of four and be tied for the division lead after the series. Yeah, so the Reds moving back into that tie, and things are shaping up for a uh, a pretty neck-and-neck neck season between the Reds and Dodgers. But then over the next two and a half months, the Reds would ultimately stretch their lead to 13 and a half games. So you're right, you know, the Reds are starting to heat up at this point. By the time the Reds uh, and Dodgers got together again in Cincinnati, June 21st and 22nd, the Reds had built up a three and a half game lead at that point. Pat Zacher threw another complete game win. The Reds won on the Monday night game. And 30, before 39,000 on Tuesday night, the Reds beat up on Don Sutton for the third time that season. Freddie Norman threw the complete game shut out and we will end up talking about Zachary at the end of the year because he's going to win an important an important award but is there anything more that a rookie could do than what Zachary did against the Dodgers in his rookie year to come up for the Reds and perform like that against the Dodgers yeah he had quite the year against the Dodgers he started over the course of the season he started six games against the Dodgers he threw 46 innings and his ERA was 1.54 he had two complete games and in those six games he went five and one that's pretty strong that's not not bad at all. So after that two-game sweep, the Reds are really about ready to take over the division race. They've taken it over, and it's about over. Uh do want to mention one other one. Uh, on June the 6th, the Reds beat the Cardinals 13-2, to and Bill Plummer drove in seven runs, hit a home run, and his only career triple. Now, this is actually our second Bill Plummer highlight to, today, but there's always been at least one Bill Plummer highlight, it seems. He has one like crazy good game, then he just goes back to the bench for a few weeks. Yeah, you you wonder what he did every night sitting on the bench all those all those games when Johnny was out there playing. <laughs> well, at least he got a chance occasionally. He he cast some good playoff and World Series checks. Uh, no question about it. Good work if you can get it. June thirteenth, Joe Morgan tied a team record. He had got an RBI in his tenth consecutive game. Little Joe Morgan. June twenty ninth. Cesar Geronimo, 5-for-6 with a homer and a triple. Reds win 12-to-5 over San Diego. And, and we mention that because uh, Cesar Geronimo was always known as kind of the, the weak link in the grade 8. That was his best season at the plate, wasn't it? Yeah, he had quite a good, he had a pretty dang on good season. He had 307, 382, 414 uh, for the season. He had 125 OPS+. plus. He had his best offensive uh, wins above replacement season with 3.3. With 3. Uh, that's a strong year. Especially when you play the kind of defense he was playing in center field. Absolutely. Now, seven Cincinnati Reds would make the All-Star team that uh, July. Tell us about the All-Star game and, and which Reds made it, Bill. Well, the 17 guys made the team. Five of them were starters. Rose, Morgan, Foster, Bench, and Concepcion all started. The other two were Perez and Griffey. And between the, the seven of them, they would combine for seven hits, four RBIs, and 14 at-bats. And Foster would take home the two, or would take home the MVP trophy with a two-run homer off that daggone catfish hunter. George Foster at the at the All Star break had 17 home runs, 72 RBIs, and he'd been the Player of the Month in May and July. And this is 
uh, we'll talk about it at the end of the season as we wrap things up, but this was kind of, the, it was just his first year as a starter, but this was the time when he really, truly burst onto the scene as a star. And 72 RBIs by the All-Star break, not bad. The rest of the year didn't go that well, did it? He did kind of struggle. He, he, I mean, he ended up leading the National League in RBIs with 121. But by his own admission, he started swinging for defenses, and, and he struggled somewhat in the second half. But he'd end up finishing second in the MVP voting to Morgan, and he'd win the Sporting News Player of the Year award for the season. That's all the Reds needed was another slugger. <laughs> I mean, just uh, George Foster emerging as the power threat that he became. That's why they called him the Great Eight. Absolutely. Last day of July, uh, Ed Armbrister, who we mentioned a key moment in the 1975 World Series, he got a rare start at Riverfront Stadium, went four for six with three runs and three RBIs, hit home runs in his first two at-bats, the only two that he hit the whole season, and and half of his career total of home runs, and then got a couple more singles and a 12-to-1 win. So a good good hot uh, day for Ed Armbrister. We got a little bit hotter the next day as the Reds were flying to San Francisco, didn't it? Yeah, it did. They were on the plane. And uh, a fire broke out in a coffee maker. And, you know, everybody's a little concerned about that. And Marty and Jess said to Sparky, well, at least if we're going down, you're going down nine in front. (laughs) Only Marty would be cracking jokes uh, while there's a fire on a plane. But it was put out by the crew and they arrived safely. The Reds, uh, at the end of July, are fairly well cruising by that point. We move into August, up nine games, as, as Marty Brenneman told us. By the time you get to August 27th against the Phils, uh, really a four-game series against a team that was kind of like the Reds, uh, pretty much a powerhouse team, and so it was a preview of the playoffs, right? Tell me, tell us about that series beginning on August 27th. Well, like you said, it was considered a preview to the playoffs. The Reds end up winning three out of four of the series, and it went Thursday through a Sunday, and all but one of them were one-run games. Uh, They drew 190,382 people, which was a Reds record for a four-day, four-game series at the time. But what was really interesting was in the the August 27th game, something happened that nobody had ever remembered happening before. And that was with with Morgan on on second base and Bench on first, Sparky calls for a double steal. So Morgan breaks for third, Bench breaks for second, Phillies throw down to second to get him. Dave Cash takes the throw, goes for the tag. Well, Morgan rounds third, doesn't even slow down, heads home, slides in, he's safe. So he got two stolen bases on one pitch, and apparently there was no provision in the rules for this at the time. So he got they gave him a stolen base, and then he awarded home on a fielder's choice. And I, and I don't know if they've changed the rules about that now or not, but that's pretty amazing. When you, I'm not sure Billy Hamilton ever even stole two bases on one pitch. Leave it to Joe Morgan to do something that no one had ever seen before. On a baseball field. September 4th, early in September, Pat Zachary, two hits the Braves in Atlanta. The Reds win 5-1. to one. The only Braves hits were singles by Tom Pashorek and former Red Pat Corrales in the second inning. And then uh, three weeks later, the Reds finally clinch the Western Division crown. It had been a, a foregone conclusion for weeks. Their fifth Western Division crown in seven years for this dynasty or budding dynasty. At that point, they weren't considered a dynasty yet. And uh, a little bit more drama, though, by the end of the season before we get into the playoffs. Bill, tell us about the batting race. Yeah, that was about the only piece of drama left for this season uh, was who would win the batting title in the National League. And it was it was Bill Madlock of the Pirates was up there, was, was competing, Ken Griffey, uh, Rose was involved, uh, Joe Morgan was involved. 
But on the last day of the season, Griffey would lose out on the batting title when he'd go 0 for 2 and then got pulled from the game. Well, Bill Madlock went 4 for 4 and he won the batting title with a 339 average to Griffey's 336. Uh, going into the final week of the season, Madlock had a 337, Griffey had a 332, Rose had a 329, and Morgan had a 327 average. So almost any of these, one of these guys could have won the batting title, but Madlock ended up walking away with it. And we talk about uh, George Foster emerging, but King Griffey at age 26, you know, had as good a season outside of Joe Morgan, perhaps, had as good a season as really anybody else in that Reds lineup. I mean, just, it's amazing. They just, there's no weak spots in this 1976 lineup. When you're looking down at the numbers, it just, it boggles the mind. How do you get these guys out? You don't. That's why they were the great eight. There you go. <laughs> before we get too deep into the playoffs, because the playoffs were fun. And this would be Griffey's best year in the, in the big leagues. Yes. Let's talk about some of these individual players. Uh, King Griffey, let's go ahead and, it was, it was 4.6 4. wins above replacement. Made the all-star team, finished top 10 in the MVP voting. It definitely was his best year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, he, he had quite the year. He, he hit 336. His on-base was over 400. And his slugging was 450. So, I mean, he was – that's a heck of a year. Freddie Norman, he rebounded from a stint in the bullpen early and became the Reds' best starter kind of uh, during the stretch run, June, July, and on. Uh, in June, 3-0 and with a 205 ERA, seven games, three of them uh, – see, three – Game started actually in June. That's when he moved into the rotation. One complete game, and then July four and one, five complete games at one point two six ERA. Who else had uh, good seasons for the Reds that we need to note before we move on to the playoffs? Well, Peter Edward Rose led the league in hits, doubles, runs, and he and he had his eighth year over two hundred hits. But Joe Morgan had another astronomically phenomenal season. He led the league in on-base percentage, slugging, OPS. He had career highs in home runs, RBIs, stolen bases. And he sold, he stole 60 out of 69. And he only played in 131 games. Uh, he won the MVP. Foster was second. Rose was fourth. Griffey was eighth. Uh, Raleigh Eastwick was 13th. And Cesar Geronimo came in 25th. Amazing. And when you're talking about awards, we mentioned Pat Zachary earlier. He went 14-7 and seven with a 2.74 ERA and won Rookie of the Year. Can you imagine being a, a live-armed rookie, finally making your Major League debut, and you, you, you walk out on the field and you look around, and the big red machine is the lineup around you? Can you imagine being a rookie coming into that situation? And then he performed. Well, yeah, I mean, and he, and he performed on the biggest stage because, you know, whenever they played the Dodgers, it was generally big news. I mean, it was like nationally. Te- if it was a weekend, it, they were on television. You know, they were on national television. It was just a phenomenal year for the for for him. And the good thing is, you went out there knowing you didn't really have to only hold him to one or two runs. Even though he he did that against the Dodgers, he pitched very very well. But you can be pretty sure when you got the Grade Eight plan behind you most most days or a, a big portion of them, you're going to get more than one or two runs a game. Yeah, no question. Seven of those Grade Eight, of course, as we said, made the All Star team, and the one that didn't. Cesar Gerano, we already talked about what a great year he had. The Reds' offense led the majors in hits, doubles, triples, home runs, stolen bases, slugging percentage, on-base percentage, even in fielding percentage and the fewest number of errors. And one team, one team had a winning record against the Reds in 1976. That's a team we're going to be seeing here in just a moment, right, Bill? Philadelphia. Yeah, they beat the Reds 7 out of 12. Um, as you said, 7 of the grade 8 made the All-Star team. The Reds had seven pitchers win 10 or more games, and that was the first time in National League history. And the team set an attendance record that season with 2.6 million 
coming to watch the Reds play. Not bad. Now, something we mentioned in 75, and you gave some context in that episode, Bill, about how often the great eight played together. In 70, 1976, they only started 46 games together. But in those 46 games, they went 36-10 and 10 with a, that's a 7.83 winning percentage. That's going to get it done. That's pretty strong. They started six of the first seven of the season, went five and two. Uh, and I think we, we may have given this number in, in the uh, in in the previous, in the 75 season wrap-up. But the, the grade eight combined in 75 and 76 played 70 regular season games in the 17 postseason games they played in. And they went 69 and 18, which is a 793 winning percentage. And if you extrapolate that out to 162 games, that is them winning 128 games. That, that, that'll get it done. That's not bad at all. That's not bad at all. Now, we move to the playoffs. The Reds will be facing the Philadelphia Phillies, who, as we said, was the only team in the league that had a winning record against the Reds in the regular season. Now, we know what happened. Uh, those of you, I'm sure, that are listening probably know what happened in this World Series. But you wonder if the Reds hadn't won the year before and they'd come up against this Phillies team that they that had some success against them, whether there would have been some more of these uh questions about the Reds, the Reds could get it done. But before we get into who the Phillies were and why they were such a powerhouse team, tell us about uh, the playoffs and the World Series in your life personally, what you remember about it, Bill. Well, well my perspective was a little different than most people's at the time. I had joined the Navy in, in August of 1976, and so I was in boot camp during the playoffs in the World Series. And so I was kind of at the mercy of my company commander as to as to finding out the results of the games from the night before. And, and if he was in a good mood when he came in in the morning, he'd tell me what happened the night before. If he wasn't, he'd wait till the end of the day and see how I'd, how I'd perform that day. And, and then on his way out the door, he'd tell me whether they won or lost. And it, it made for some long days. It was, it was a, little, a little difficult. But I had some guys in my, in my boot camp company from both Philadelphia and from New York. So I did manage to uh, extract, uh, you know, extract a few dollars from those guys over the course of the playoffs in the World Series. Outstanding. Now, let's talk a little bit about the Philadelphia Phillies, who the Reds would play in the National Championship Series. The Philadelphia Phillies had won the National League Eastern Division. They'd won 101 games versus the Reds, 102 games. And we talk occasionally about the Pythagorean uh, theorem when it comes to uh, baseball, which is uh, runs scored, runs allowed. There's a, it's a mathematical theory to determine how many games you should win essentially. And it's kind of a rough uh, thing to look at, but it's fun to look at. And, and the Pythagorean numbers for Philadelphia was that they should have won 104 games and the Reds 103. So these were two great teams. We already said the Phillies won the season series from the Reds. This was the only time up to that point that two teams with 100 plus wins had faced off in the playoffs. So I can't stress enough, this is a really good team. Tell us, uh, Bill, how the season kind of went for Philadelphia and how they got to the playoffs. Well, they had jumped out in early May and taken the lead in the NL East. And by the end of the August, it looked like they had it wrapped up. They were 15 and a half games in front. But here come the Pirates. And by, by September the 17th, the Pirates had cut the lead down to three. But then the Phillies kind of regained control of the division and ended up winning it by nine games. And when Chance says this was a strong team, let me tell you some of the guys that were on this Philly team. Mike Schmidt, Hall of Famer. Steve Carlton, Hall of Famer. Their offense was Dick Allen, incredibly off, uh, incredible offensive player, played a lot of different places. Could you know he had trouble with management, but boy, he could hit. Uh, Greg Lazinski, Greg uh, Gary Maddox, and Jay Johnstone were probably their best offensive players. 
they had five pitchers win 10 games like just like the Reds did. And the lowest ERA plus in their bullpen was 123. So it wasn't any any big surprise that they had won as many games as they had. I mean, this is a this is a hundred win a, a legitimate hundred win team with legitimate expectations of their own coming into the series. Now, game one, they're going to start their ace, Steve Carlton, who his his name keeps popping up in this uh, podcast series because he was really the uh, elite pitcher in the National League during this time, and he would start game one for the Phillies versus Don Gullett. Originally, Sparky Anderson wanted to start Pat Zachary. You know, Sparky still considered Pat Zachary's number one starter uh, versus Carlton, but uh, Super Scout Ray Shore comes back into the <laughs> the picture here and talked him into starting Don Gullett. Ray Shore, has he's kind of an unsung hero because he keeps showing up throughout these episodes and throughout all our research into the Big Red Machine, and turns out he might have been right, but what was Ray Shore's reasons for that? Well, he, he told Sparky, and, and you're right, he, he does seem to have a, a big influence on Sparky's thinking. He he was able to to make Sparky rethink some things, or at least look at things. It seems like from a different perspective. But anyway, what he talked about with Sparky in this case was he felt that Gullet was look at this like he was pitching for his life with you know with the fact that he was going to be a free agent after the seasons. He had this impending free agency. He didn't know where his next contract was going to be, and 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 what it'd be for. So he, that he might go out there and throw a good game against Carlton. And he did, didn't he? Yeah, he did pretty well. He threw eight innings of two-hit, one-run baseball. And when he left, and he also drove in three runs. <laughs> so he left with a 6-1 lead. Pete had three hits that day. Foster hit a home run. The Reds stole four bases and ended up winning 63 to, 6-3 to take a one-run or one-nothing lead in the series. Game two, Pat Zachary versus uh, Jim Lomborg. The Phils lead 2 to nothing. Lomborg has a no-hitter going through five. But when we get to the sixth... Here's that uh, speed and base running of the Reds that we've talked about every single episode, the, the things that Bob Housen wanted to instill in this team. They make the difference in, in game two. Dave Concepcion led off of the walk, moved to second on a ground out, scored on a single by Pete Rose. King Griffey singles, Rose goes to third, and then Griffey takes second base on the throw uh, to third base. Joe Morgan intentionally walked, and then uh, Perez hits a line drive that went off Dick Allen's glove at first. Rose and Griffey score, Morgan goes around to third, Eventually scores on a ground out, and the Reds lead 4-2. to two. Then in the seventh, they added two more. Lead 6-2, to two, Pedro Bourbon throws four innings of shutout relief. The Reds are up two games to none and have to be feeling pretty good as they go into game three, don't you think, Bill? I would think they probably did. I was doing push-ups at the time. <laughs> the Phil should have done some more push-ups. Maybe so. So game three, and it was, it was a heck of a ball game. It would feature four lead changes and a ninth-inning Reds rally. In the seventh inning, the Reds would be trailing three to nothing. Uh, rookie Manny Sarmiento had just given up two runs in the top of the seventh. The Reds come to bat down three to nothing. Griffey leads off with a single. Morgan walks. And Phillies manager Danny Ozark brought in Ron Reed, double switching him with Bobby Tolan in left field. Uh, and they took out Greg Lazinski. So after Perez singles, Foster hits a sacrifice fly, bench walks, and Geronimo triples. And the Reds went from being down three to nothing to being up four to three going to the eighth. Well, Raleigh Eastwick struggled. He gave up two runs on two doubles and a sacrifice fly in the eighth. And he gave up an unearned run in the ninth on an error by Rose and a triple by Jay Johnstone. So the Reds go to the bottom of the ninth and they're down six to four. Well, Foster comes up, leads off with a home run. Well, bench not to be not to be outdone. Bench hits a home run, so now it's tied. Concepcion singles, 
Geronimo walks, and then they intentionally walk Pete to load the bases up with one out. And Griffey hits a big high chopper that went off of Bobby Tolan, who'd been brought in to play first base in the bottom of the eighth inning. And Concepcion scores, and the Reds win the series three to nothing. Now, I'm not a guy to hold a grudge, but I do like the fact that the ball went off of Bobby Tolan's glove after what after costing the Reds the seventh game of the '72 World Series. No question about it. <laughs> so the Reds are back in the World Series, and. We'll wrap up how the series went, but this is the first glimpse of what I think was the, the cockiness and the swagger of the Big Red Machine. I've kind of always in my head, and maybe I'm overstating this, I felt like this maybe this team wasn't better than the 76 team. That's something that we're going to discuss uh, as we wrap up things later on. Uh, maybe they were better. We'll, we'll try to figure that out. But I think coming into the World's, or the playoffs, they're playing against a very good Philadelphia team. They're going to play against a good Yankee team we're going to talk about. But they just absolutely uh, acted like they were the better team from the first second they stepped on the on the field in this national championship series, Pete Rose went six for fourteen with three extra base hits. A bench uh, warmed up for the World Series by going four for twelve with a double and home run. Foster had a couple home runs. Pedro Bourbon was great in relief. Don Gullett and Gary Nolan, the mainstays of the Big Red Machine, both had, both had excellent starts, and it was just a a dominating performance in a lot of ways. But a very real opponent in the World Series, these Yankees, the American League champions, were the real deal, weren't they? Yeah, they were, but going back to the playoffs for just a second, it, what it looks to me like, and, and reading uh, everything I've read about it, the Reds just took advantage of their advantages. You know, took advantage of the things they were really good at, the speed, the defense, taking the extra base, you know, working pitchers for, for, for on-base percentage, and, and never letting the other team's mistake get by without making it hurt them. Now, the World Series, the first one to use the designated hitter. And uh, I, I do want you to, if you could, tell us about the uh, New York Yankees, please, Bill. Well, the Yankees had gone 97 to 62, and their manager was Billy Martin. I don't remember whether this was his first time as manager of the Yankees or his 22nd time as manager of the Yankees. I've never been able to keep track of that. For those that aren't aware, he was hired and fired by George Steinbrenner, I don't know how many times, as the Yankee manager. But the Yankees had, had won the American League East by 10 and a half games over the Orioles. And they really kind of controlled it the whole season. They took over sole possession at first on uh, April the 13th, and they never gave it up. Their high water mark was a 14-and-a-half game lead towards the end of July. In their, in their playoffs, they had beaten the Kansas City Royals in a tight five-game series, and they won the, the finale game 7-6 to at Yankee Stadium in a dramatic walk-off, lead-off home run by Chris Chambliss. They had some real players that team, obviously led by their captain, Thurman Munson, the catcher. But they had Greg Nettles, who uh, was a, maybe some trade talks with the Reds a couple of years prior to this. Mickey Rivers, outstanding speedy center fielder. Willie Randolph, slick fielding second baseman and, and first baseman Chris Shambliss. All those guys had outstanding seasons. And the pitching staff, future Hall of Famer Catfish Hunter. They had Doc Ellis, who the Reds had gotten to know from his time with Pittsburgh. Ed Figueroa. And Doyle Alexander, bullpen, had uh, Sparky Lyle, who was an elite closer, and three other pitchers uh, with outstanding seasons, Grant Jackson, Tippy Martinez, and Dick Tidrow. Now, experts, quote-unquote, had the Reds as heavy favorites, but, you know, I look at this team, and, and I, I think, you know, this is a pretty good team. I'm not sure how the Reds would be that heavy of favorites unless it's just that everyone else uh, kind of believed the swagger that we were seeing from the Reds. Billy Martin had some uh, thoughts, I guess, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He he. he, he was running his mouth. He said, 
well, we've got better pitching, and I'll take Thurman Munson over Johnny Bench, and I'll take Roy White over George Foster, and I'll take Chris Chambliss over Tony Perez, and Willie Randolph's better than Joe Morgan. The Reds didn't really agree. <laughs> well, and Sparky's famous uh, quote about that was, let's not embarrass anyone on earth by comparing them to John Bench. Well, how you, anybody could say they had a better player than Joe Morgan, the way he was playing, it's kind of, you need to have you know somebody look at what you're smoking. Well, Billy Martin, strange bird. Now, again, our guy, Super Scout Ray Shore, he thought that the Reds were vastly superior. I wonder if we just haven't heard the stories about where Ray Shore was wrong. But every time his name comes up, he's got some kind of key piece of advice. And he said that he'd be disappointed if the Reds lost more than one game. But but the key here is, he also said, and he told Sparky this, the Reds could run on New York's outfielders. Because he'd done advanced scouting and, and watched the, the Yankees play. So the key was keeping Mickey Rivers off the base, keeping Thurman Munson in the ballpark, but also looking for your opportunities to take an extra base against their outfielders. Tell us about game one, Bill. Well, it started with the pitching for the Yankees was Doyle Alexander, and for the Reds it was Donnie Gullett. This cannot be overstated from what I've been told historically. Mickey Rivers led off for the Yankees, and as he steps into the box, Pete starts creeping in from third base. And by the time Gullet pinched, they said Rose was like 20 feet, 25 feet down the line. And Rose said later that he wanted to take away the bunt, but he also wanted to intimidate Rivers and just kind of dare him to hit the ball by him. And Rivers struck out to lead off the game. And most people believe that at that point, from that point on, the Reds were in Mickey Rivers' head for the whole series. He'd go three for 18 in the World Series, and his on-base percentage would be 211. Joe Morgan would homer in the first inning. The game went to the top of the sixth, where the Yankees had a chance to do some damage. They put four of their first five batters on base, but couldn't score. Stanley walked, but Rivers couldn't sacrifice him over, and then Rivers ends up getting thrown out stealing. Uh, Cesar Geronimo dropped a liner by Roy White. Thurman Munson singled, sent sent White over to the third, but Lupinella lined out to end the inning. But the Reds, like you said a moment ago, when they got their opportunities in the sixth inning, they took advantage, whereas the other team couldn't, right? Yep. In the sixth, Griffey got on via fielder's choice. He stole second. He scored on a Perez single. Then in the seventh, Bench tripled in Foster, and then he scored on a wild pitch. And so all of a sudden, the Reds are up 5-1. to one. And when you got Donnie Gullett out there, and he's throwing the way he was, and he, he'd only allow one run and five hits on seven and a third, and it would turn out to be his last game as a Red. And he left the game because he had a dislocation of a tendon in his ankle. And that sounds like it would hurt. It sounds very painful, but a great career for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, one of the great what-if stories in Reds history to me. And, and would have a, a, a pretty good career as a Reds pitching coach later. No question, no question. Now, you uncovered a, a pretty interesting anecdote that's even more interesting in the wake of the recent scandal regarding the Houston Astros and their sign-stealing. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, this was in uh, Big Red Dynasty uh, is where I saw this. And the Reds had given the Yankees permission to use walkie-talkies to, to monitor and to set their defense while they were sitting up in the press box. Well, then Housem heard that they had taken a position in ABC's TV booth where they could see the TV broadcast and see what Bench was signaling to his pitchers. Well, Housem thought they were out there stealing signs, so he called and got a hold of the commissioner who got the Yankee scouts out of the TV booth. Very interesting. I, I don't think I'd ever heard that story before, Bill. Game two, Catfish Hunter, our old nemesis, versus Freddie Norman. Now, this was the first ever Sunday night game in a World Series, and it was not very a pleasant 
environs. 43-degree weather. In the second inning, the Reds jump out to a 3-0 lead, and one part is in particular telling. Cesar Geronimo scores on a short fly to center field. He takes off because Ray Shore, as we said a moment ago, had told the Reds to run on Mickey Rivers at every opportunity. He does. Now, the Yankees come back to tie up the game with one in the fourth and two in the seventh. The tying run scored on a ground ball given up by Jack Billingham, who just come in from the bullpen to relieve Freddie Norman. It stayed that way until the bottom of the ninth, and I'll let you pick up the action at that point, Bill. Well, at the bottom of the ninth, Hunter had been on quite a roll. After after the Reds had scored in the second, he'd retired 14 of the next 16 he faced, including getting Concepcion and Rose in the ninth. And he got ahead of Griffey with two strikes, and then Griffey hit a soft grounder that Fred Stanley took, picked up and threw into the Reds' dugout. Griffey takes second. They walked Joe Morgan and they, you know, to set up a double play, or to set up a force out, rather. And, and Morgan turned around and re- yelled into the Yankees' dugout at Billy Martin, big mistake because of Perez's reputation for big RBIs. So what happens? Perez singles into left field. Reds win. They're up two to nothing. Billingham got the win in this game where he ended up throwing two and two-thirds shutout relief. And it's just another example of how, how strong Billingham was in the World Series. That's five straight postseason wins for the 1976 Reds. Game three, Pat Zachary takes the mound against Doc Ellis. The Reds immediately jump out to a three-run lead in the second inning off uh, Ellis. Four hits, two stolen bases. Then Dreesen, Danny Dreesen followed with a homer in the fourth. That made the score four to nothing. Rosen Morgan scored uh, in the eighth, and the Reds pushed it out to a 6-2 lead, which would end up being the final score. Dan Dreesen led the Reds going 3-for-3 three three with a double, homer, an intentional walk. Pat Zachary threw six and two-thirds, gave up two runs, and then Will McEnany threw the final two and a third. Reds led 3 to nothing. We're looking to sweep, and Billy Martin, after the game, was still talking, huh? Yeah, he said, we're being out-blooped. <laughs> yeah, that, that was it, Billy Martin. Yep. Tell us about game four, Bill. Well, it was supposed to be on a Wednesday. Rain in New York pushed it out to Thursday. It was going to be Gary Nolan against Ed Figueroa. And in the first inning, the Yankees finally take a lead in the series. Uh, they've taken the lead on a, a, a Thurman Munson single and a Chris Chambliss double. But it didn't last too long. In the fourth, Foster drove in Morgan, who'd walked and stolen second base. Then Bench hit his first home run of the night to make it 3-1 to one Reds. In the fifth, Thurman Munson drove in Mickey Rivers. So it was 3-2, to two, and it stayed that way up till the top of the ninth. And in the ninth, Ed Figueroa, he walked the first two batters, Perez and Dreesen. Well, Billy Martin brought in Dick Tidrow, and he got Foster, and he was gonna, and he left him in there to, to face Johnny Bench, who he'd gotten to hit into a double play back in game two. Well, and this is the the famous, and I'm sure Clyde Chad will do the quote here in a minute. Bench hits a home run to left. The Reds lead six to two. And what did Sparky say, Chad? This is let me just set it up just a moment there, because it is the title of the episode. It's my favorite quote in Cincinnati Reds history. You know, after every World Series. The, uh, the league would put out a, a highlight video, and this came in, in the 1976 highlight video. So Bench hits that home run. And we mentioned earlier that George Scherger, you know, was a Reds coach. Uh, after Alex Grammis left, he they moved him to third base coach. But Bench hits that home run, and uh, there's this great clip of Sparky Anderson kind of celebrating in the dugout. And he says, boys, I got news for you. We're going to be world's champions again, Sugar Bear. I got news for you. We are now going to be world's champions again. And I just absolutely love it. We've tried to point out 
places where you can go to YouTube and see some of these key things to visualize the things we're talking about. That's one you got to go to YouTube and watch. I just, for whatever, from the first time I heard that, I thought, we're going to be world's champions again, Sugar Bear. I just love it. I love it. I've used that uh, uh, in uh, in ball games for my entire life. Yeah, hopefully we'll get to say that again before, you know, we pass away. <laughs> the Red, the Reds ended, and the Reds weren't done. They, they got another run in the inning with on back-to-back ground rule doubles by Cesar Geronimo and David Concepcion. So they're up 7-2. to two. And Sparky goes to McEnany again in the seventh for the second night in a row. And you got to remember, McEnany, he'd had, he'd had a terrible season in 1976. But for the second straight year, Sparky asked him to get the final outs in the World Series. So in the ninth, he struck out pinch hitter Otto Velez. He got Mickey Rivers to line out to Pete Rose. And Roy White flies out to George Foster in left center. And the Reds are world champions again. Now, you were otherwise occupied during that time, but do you remember when the Reds won that World Series and what it felt like uh, to be a Reds fan, now back-to-back champions? Well, I, I can remember what, what we said here was nobody plays baseball the way we play it in Cincinnati. That, I, that was the, the call, you know, the, the, the line of, that everybody talked about. Nobody plays baseball like we do. And, and, we, and we felt that way in Cincinnati from high school through pros. I mean, we, we just felt like we had the best baseball in the state. We had the best baseball in, in Major League Baseball. We had the best baseball, period. Yeah, and you, you have this feeling in Cincinnati, which is just a baseball town, but now, you know, it's kind of the nation is forced to take notice because it's, it was true at the time. Certainly on the professional level, nobody played baseball like the Reds did. And so Cincinnati was the center of the sports world for a couple of years here. I, I think it's difficult for people nowadays to kind of understand, especially the last couple of generations of Reds fans who've uh, suffered through just uh, a disaster for most of their lives in terms of Cincinnati Reds baseball. It's hard to really understand how they literally were the center of the sports world, weren't they? Yes, they were. I mean, covers of magazines. I can't tell you how many sports magazines they were on the cover of. I mean, Sport Magazine, uh, Sporting News, Sports Illustrated, blah, blah, yeah, you name it, they were on the cover of it. Uh, Johnny Bench was even appearing on Hee Haw. Hee Haw. <laughs> exactly. So let's wrap up the uh, World Series. Uh, Dan Dreesen, we mentioned him earlier, he was the Reds' designated hitter for that entire series. And the Reds only used nine position players in the series. So basically those uh, those nine guys is all that played for the uh, for the Reds offensively. Jack Billingham, you have talked about Jack Billingham a couple of times in terms of his playoff prowess. And again, Jack Billingham was fantastic in this World Series, wasn't he? Yeah, dating, dating back to the, to the 72 series, he'd thrown in seven World Series games. He'd thrown 25 in the third innings, and he'd given up one run for an ERA of .36. That was the lowest World Series in World Series history at the time. It was later uh, broken by Baumgartner for the Giants. This is the only time a team won seven in a row to sweep both series. Yeah, they just barreled through the playoffs, and uh, to win your second straight and win the second one in such dominating fashion, everyone had to sit up and take notes. This is a uh, team unlike any that we have seen. Jenny Mitch won the MVP, didn't he? Yeah, Johnny did okay in the World Series. After having actually having a down year, he hit 533 in the series. He hit the two homers in Game Four. He had six RBIs. His slugging was 1.133, which is was fourth best in World Series history at the time. And this was one. You know, this fits in with all those other dramatic home runs that he's hit in in his career. You know, the 72 Game Five homer off of Justy, 
to tie the game at three. The, the 73 NCL, NLCS homer off a of Seaver in game one that won the game two to one. The game three homer off of Ron Reed to tie the game at six in, in game three uh, earlier in the playoffs. The Reds went on to win seven to six and clinch the playoffs. And then he homers in the fourth and clinches the, 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 the series in the ninth with the two home runs into this game. And how do you wrap up a season like this? We already talked about Joe Morgan winning his second straight most valuable player at age 32. I mean, just uh, astounding numbers, 320 average, 444 on base, 27 homers, uh, OPS over 1,000 for the season. Just uh, incredible numbers. We've already already discussed some. The Reds led the National League basically in every offensive category. And 102 and 60. And, again, it's a difficult question for me to ask you, Bill. The Reds had the top attendance in the league at 2.61 million. And at the end of this season, you have to think as a Reds fan, and I wonder if you remember back that time, thinking that it's never going to get better than this. Well, I think what I remember thinking at, at the time was after two world championships in a row, how can this team be stopped? And that's the question we'll discuss next week. Thank you for listening again to Building the Machine, the brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play. Essentially, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder, Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi, and The Big 50, The Minute Moments That Made the Cincinnati Reds by Chris Garber. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. <laughs>